One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This week we start at the Palace of Westminster, the great neo-Gothic edifice on the River Thames, which is home to the British Parliament. It's a building hard to miss, but that is just what the British Prime Minister did last week when she launched airstrikes on Syria without coming here first to get the backing of MPs. The same goes for President Trump in the US and President Macron in France before those three Western powers launched military action without United Nations authorization. So when is it legal to use force abroad? Are the rules on this now dead? And if legitimacy is in the eye of the beholder, does that put our planet at risk of a wider war? You're listening to The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie. Let's head over to the studio and meet the panel. And we're joined by Dmitry Babich, who's an analyst at the Rossiya Sevodnya news agency in Moscow. Yes, yes, nice to hear from you. <laughs> and you, and Sir Mark Lyle Grant, former British ambassador to the UN. Hello. Hi. And Ona Hathaway, Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, former counsel in the US Department of Defence. Great to be with you. And Paul Wolfowitz, who was US Deputy Secretary of Defence between 2001 and 2005. Hello, good to be with you. Thank you all. Now, a quick opening question. Were last week's airstrikes on Syria justified? Ambassador Wolfowitz. Yes, I believe they were based on what we do know. It's worth pointing out they were very limited and limited to chemical weapons targets. Ona Hathaway. No, they were clearly in violation of international law and U.S. domestic law. Sir Mark Lyle Grant. Yes, I think they were justified, and I also think it was justified for the Prime Minister not to seek prior authorization from Parliament. So that's two yeses, one no. Dimitri Babich, you're the last. Uh, no, they were not justified, uh, and certainly the risk, you know, which was caused by these airstrikes was certainly not justified by their scope. So that's an even split on this panel. Now, in a moment, we're going to hear from a Rwandan who watched people being butchered all around him and believes very firmly in humanitarian interventions. But first, let's explore further the legality of last week's airstrikes on Syria. Sir Mark Lyle Grant, you said justified. The UK government is the only one which has set out a clear legal argument. What is it? Well, I think the argument is that in certain extreme exceptional cases of potential human suffering, you can take military action to protect civilian lives, provided that there is uh, three things, really. Firstly, that there is extreme humanitarian distress or the prospect of extreme humanitarian distress. Secondly, that there is no practical alternative to taking military action, the use of force. And thirdly, that the use of force itself is necessary and proportionate. And I think in the case of the military strikes against the Assad regime, all three of those conditions were met, and indeed the strikes were successful in their own terms. Ambassador Wolfowitz, you too said it was justified, the airstrike, uh, but your president said the purpose was to establish a strong deterrent against the production, spread and use of chemical weapons, which is a somewhat different justification from the one we've just heard from Sir Mark. Everything that Sir Mark said is correct, but what the president said is this ties into something that is a direct threat to American and British and French national security, 
And we've seen the use of chemical weapons in London. We've seen it in Kuala Lumpur. We have to worry about it being used in the United States and in every country in the world. It's supposed to be banned, and countries that produce it should get rid of it and stop using it. And I think this was a step in the right direction in that respect, and I think justified on the grounds of self-defense. And Ona Hathaway, you're a professor of international law. The French argument was slightly different again from the British and the American one. Does it matter that there are three justifications from three Western powers? Yes, I think it matters. And I think it's indicative of the fact that, in fact, there isn't any good legal argument. Um, and so they're all kind of scrambling around for various arguments and haven't been able to settle on one. So the UK argument that this is justified as a humanitarian intervention is really an outlier position. Um, it's a position that the UK has taken before, but basically a very small handful of states share that view. And even its partners in this action don't share that view. The position the U.S. has put out um, is a little bit muddled. It actually hasn't really been clear about what the legal basis is, but it seems to be something like use of chemical weapons is terrible and we have to do something about it. The downside of that is that there's a chemical weapons convention that has its own enforcement regime that does not include unilateral strikes by states without Security Council authorization. And then the French have given up on, at least so far, even making any legal argument and have essentially just said it's legitimate without even trying to argue, it seems, that it's legal. So I think it's pretty indicative of the fact that actually it pretty clearly isn't legal under international law. Dmitry Babich, as a Russian, do any of these justifications, either from law or from legitimacy, moral legitimacy, do any of these justifications satisfy you? Well, these justifications are not accepted in Russia, at least by the majority of the experts and uh, of the population, because there were too many examples before when uh, the reasons for these so-called humanitarian interventions, which were in fact wars, the reasons were simply not true. They were probably falsified. Like uh, in 2003, the, the main reason why the United States and the UK invaded Iraq was, uh, you know, the search for the weapons of uh, mass destruction, which were not found there. In Kosovo in 1999, we were promised by the Western media and by a lot of Western politicians that at least 100,000 Kosovo Albanians were killed there and that troops would find the graves that turned out to be an exaggeration. There were a few hundreds of burial sites found, but it was certainly not on the scale mentioned in the press. So if we talk about impunity, I think we should talk also about impunity of the people who pushed for these so-called humanitarian interventions, who unleashed wars in which hundreds of thousands of people died, like in Iraq, so, so can and I just who check, never bore any responsibility. Are you basically saying that in this case, in the case of the Syrian airstrikes, because the same actors or the same nations are involved, or some of them, that they have no credibility because of the past and therefore they can't conduct a legitimate operation now? Well, certainly it's not an argument in favor of the strikes. But the main reason also, the strike, the punishment, came before uh, the investigation by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And this is not how it should be done under any legal system. You always must have investigation, 
then trial, and then the punishment. So Mark so Lyle Grant the, wants the proof to come is in. very shaky. Yes, but, uh, but I'm afraid the Russians always take this view. Even when the UN inspectors showed very clearly that there were chemical weapons used this time last year and that it was most likely that it came from the Assad regime, the Russians simply didn't accept that investigation. And I go back to one of the points I made earlier, that, uh, of course, one doesn't use military action as a first resort, and one needs to explore the alternatives. But look at the situation in Syria. It is Russia that has deliberately blocked off all the alternatives. Russia has vetoed an independent investigation of this incident. They have vetoed sanctions against the Assad regime repeatedly. They have vetoed referral to the International Criminal Court, and they have vetoed authorization by the UN Security Council. So, you know, Russia cannot take a view that humanitarian intervention is wrong when they block any alternatives to avoid uh, hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties. I want to move away for a moment from the Syrian situation because it's one thing for us to be arguing about humanitarian intervention from the comfort of a radio studio, but it is another to plead for your life with a bloodthirsty soldier wielding a machete. In 1994, perhaps up to a million Rwandans died in a genocidal civil war. Paul Recessa Begina survived. He went on to become famous as the manager in the film Hotel Rwanda. But many of his wife's family, his neighbours and his friends were butchered. And the horror of those savage months left him a passionate believer in military intervention by the international community. In the morning of April 6, 1994, I had told all my kids not to go out, but already one of a neighboring and just a next door family had over six, seven people, seven people, a mother and her six kids had already been butchered with the three other neighbors who just were with them. And when we drove all from our home, we were seeing dead bodies all along the roads. I remember I was stopped, given a gun, ordered to shoot my wife and my children and my neighbors. It was horrible. All around the hotel, you could see you know, what are trucks carrying dead bodies, taking them to mass graves. It was so clear from the roof of the hotel, you could see each and everything in details. But you can just think about approximately 800,000 people being butchered in every day in a small country like Rwanda. You cannot grasp the amount, the number of people who were being butchered, how it looked like in that country. It was so horrible. So do you believe that if there had been a humanitarian intervention in 1994 in Rwanda, that lives would have been saved, including possibly those of your members of your own family and your wife's family? Not only I believe in that, but also I believe without any doubt that the Rwandan history would be completely different from what we hear and what we see today. General Dallaire, who was the the leader of the UNAMIR, the United Nations Mission for Rwanda, was asking for another 2,700 or 800 more soldiers to help stop what was going on. Rwandans, we know each other. 
no one can kill a neighbor in front of an international observer. So the Rwandan history would be completely different if the United Nations would have taken a different decision rather than pulling out, abandoning a whole nation to thieves, thugs, criminals of all sorts. Paul Recessa-Bagina in Rwanda. Well, it was partly in reaction to that genocide and to a second genocide in Bosnia, in the former Yugoslavia, that the international community did finally intervene later that decade in Kosovo. General Wesley Clark led that operation as NATO commander in Europe, and he joins us now. Uh, General Clark, how much was the humanitarian objective your key mission there? Well, it was the whole um, it was a whole rationale for the mission because we'd been there. We'd seen what was happening in Rwanda. We should have intervened. President Clinton said it was one of the greatest mistakes of his presidency that he didn't. We didn't intervene. And, you know, we resolved that we weren't going to let that happen again. And what we saw was an unfolding tragedy in Kosovo, despite what our Russian guest says. In fact, in the fall of 98, ethnic cleansing began. It started actually in the spring of 98. You could see mortar fire and other things delivered by the Serb military against these Albanian villages in Kosovo. 400,000 people left their homes in the fall of 1998. It was like a joke. Milosevic could do ethnic cleansing up to a certain level, and he thought he could get away with it without bringing in the international community. But We went through a NATO activation exercise. We did everything we could diplomatically. I made three trips down there to see Milosevic to encourage him in the fall of 1998 to pull his soldiers back and not do it. The Russian military came in in December. I guess they told him, hey, don't worry about NATO because uh, you'll get away with it. And sure enough, after the first of the year uh, of 1999, he began the ethnic cleansing campaign again. And so do you feel that your operation prevented a massacre? One and a half million Albanians were forced out of their homes by Milosevic. We don't really have an accurate number of how many were killed. Uh, We know that busloads of bodies were dumped into mine shafts and taken up for disposal in Serbia. And the Albanians weren't fleeing for no reason. So uh, NATO intervened as a last resort and did the best it could to stop the ethnic cleansing that was going on. And how concerned were you about the legal case for your operation? Well, yes, there's concern about the legal case, but I had orders from the chain of command to do this. I had lawyers. We looked very carefully at what we were doing. We had a UN Security Council resolution, 1199, which said, All action should be taken under authority of Chapter 7 to deal with the urgent humanitarian crisis. So really, the use of force was precisely a last resort in an effort to avert a humanitarian, a repeat of a humanitarian tragedy in Bosnia that I'll remind you cost two million people displaced from their homes, over 100,000 killed, five years of conflict, billions of dollars worth of damages and wrecked a society that still hasn't recovered. As President Clinton said, when you can make a difference, you should. And in Kosovo, we could make a difference and we did. General Wesley Clark, there we'll leave it. Thank you so much for joining us.
Uh, Dmitry Babich, I want to get your reaction to all of that from Moscow because there was quite a firm finger pointed there at Russia for failing to make permanent friends. As for Russia's permanent friends and permanent interests, if you look at Russia's attitude, if you look at, for example, the tragic story of former President Mikhail Gorbachev, Russia was very much willing to be friends with the United States, with the European Union. Unfortunately, it didn't get any reciprocation from them, so neither in the justify, 90s nor especially now. Does that justify blocking these efforts at the UN Security Council now? It, it doesn't justify anything. It just gives you the context of what's going on and the feelings that Russians must have after basically surrendering our forces and our leverage on Eastern Europe, uh, which we did quite voluntarily between 1989 and 1991. So Russia made a huge investment into this future peaceful world order that General has been talking about. Unfortunately, this investment was not reciprocated. I'd talking like, about okay, what changed. Uh, yes, I think that's very important. Dimitri, let's let Omar Hathaway in because, you know, we've heard mudslinging from the US side and the Russian side. Now let's hear from the detachment of an academic lawyer, owner. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that need to be pointed out here. Russia's citing of the UN Charter is, I have to say, pretty disingenuous. It has also cited humanitarian intervention grounds for its interventions in Georgia and Ukraine. Obviously, we haven't mentioned yet today the Russian seizure of Crimea, which is the first conquest in Europe since World War II. So, you know, Russia is not an innocent actor here. Um, There is a NATO base there now, but it was not a conquest, you know, when the foreign troops entered it without UN authorization. Well, um, it was clearly a violation of international law. There was a sort of sham referendum held, but clearly in violation of both Ukrainian and and international law. And Russia has also prevented the Security Council from taking any action in Syria and, you know, really has been blocking the ability of the international community to do anything proactive here. So that, I think, is really important for us to point out. I also wanted to note that the case of Rwanda, I think, is distinct from what we're talking about today. Rwanda, the problem there was not that the Security Council wouldn't authorize action. The problem there was that nobody wanted to get involved. And so I think it's important for us not to equate those two situations. I think also but Kosovo do you accept, is a little... Dif- do you accept, Ona Hathaway, that a generally perceived failure to prevent genocide in Rwanda and then again in Bosnia, did uh, impact decisions on Kosovo? I think there's no doubt about that. Um, I think it also played a role in the decision to intervene in Libya. I think that Hillary Clinton, who was a big advocate for the intervention in Libya, felt that her husband's administration had really failed by failing to intervene in Rwanda. And that was part of the reason for the decision to go into Libya, um, which was a humanitarian intervention and was, by the way, authorized by the Security Council. So at least under international law, it was legal. So it certainly had an echoing effect throughout this process. And I think it's also part of the reason that many feel the need to do something in Syria is the sense that the international community ought not stand by to try and prevent the terrible suffering of civilians in Syria. Ambassador, Ambassador, yes, I was just about to say, Ambassador Wolfowitz, uh, your take on this. First of all, let's get away from the finger pointing and recognize there's a basic problem here, which I think 
we need to recognize and we need to question whether the existing legal frameworks are adequate to it. Rwanda wasn't the only time we said never again, but then we went ahead and did more or less the same thing, turning a blind eye to slaughter in Bosnia until finally in 1995, President Clinton intervened, leading a NATO intervention that did stop massive crimes against humanity. And if you want witnesses, there were 11,000 bodies, I believe, recovered just in Srebrenica alone. And the estimate that General Clark gave you a little while ago of 100,000 is considered to be a low figure, actually, for, for Bosnia. So we said never again, and yet it happened again. But the point I want to make is there is a real problem here of genocide, ethnic cleansing, massive crimes against humanity. And by the way, we didn't go to Afghanistan because of those reasons. We went to Afghanistan because of widely perceived and recognized threat to the United States from terrorism. We could come back to that. But the point is, there is this problem, and the international community seems to frequently be paralyzed by the lack of leadership and the lack of consensus. And that was why in 2005 you had this world summit of all the leaders of the world that got together and agreed on this idea of responsibility to protect. Unfortunately, when you read the language that came out of that, although it does refer to the possibility at some point of using military means to protect under Chapter 7, in fact, it's so vague there's really no way to base anything on that from, I think, a lawyer's point of view. Let me just add one other thing. I can think of at least three important humanitarian interventions that were successful, and it might be worth thinking a little bit about successes. One was Somalia, where uh, without American leadership, there would not have been an intervention that I think saved 200,000 people or more or less from starvation. Then in 2003, there was an intervention again led by the United States in Liberia that ended a terrible civil war there and brought about a democratically elected government in that struggling country. And there were British interventions in Sierra Leone, and um, in 1991, the United States led a multinational coalition of mostly European countries into northern Iraq and saved arguably a million or two million Kurds who were on the verge of starvation in the mountains on the Turkish border, enabled them to go back home, cleared a whole area of northern Iraq, which remained peaceful for a very long time, and to this day is perhaps the most successful part of Iraq. I think it's something that's worth thinking about as we think about Syria, which is creating places where people can actually protect themselves. It didn't take a permanent American presence in northern Iraq to allow the Kurds to produce what was essentially a self-governing entity and to end what could have been a real humanitarian disaster. And I think if you want to really do something in Syria besides just chemical weapons, one should think about looking at these ceasefire zones, which I believe... The Russians promised to support, and the ceasefires have been violated systematically. It's not just chemical weapons. Make sure those zones are protected and even expand them, I think, would be one of the things one could do that would actually save lives. We'll come back to all of that uh, after the break. Uh, Just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, in the aftermath of airstrikes on Syria, we're looking at the legal case for military intervention. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I do encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss an edition. I do always like to tell you about other podcasts you might want to listen to. This week, the BBC World Service and Norway's NRK have launched a new one. It's called Death in Ice Valley. And it's an attempt to find out more about a woman whose body was found in Norway in 1970. 
The investigation's ongoing and it's asking for the help of podcast listeners. You can download the first episode now. Just search for Death in Ice Valley wherever you find your podcasts. Do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story. Give us any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our new email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk or tweet me at BBC Carrie. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie, looking at the justifications, legal and otherwise, for military action. We're joined by Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz, US Deputy Secretary of Defence between 2001 and 2005. Sir Mark Lyle Grant, who was British Ambassador to the United Nations between 2009 and 2015. Ona Hathaway, Professor of International Law at Yale Law School and herself a former counsel in the US Department of Defence. And Dmitry Babich, who's an analyst at Rossiya Sevodnya News Agency in Moscow. Now, Earlier in the programme, we looked at the controversy surrounding the legal case for airstrikes on Syria and military interventions on humanitarian grounds. Coming up, are the big powers shrugging off international law altogether? And how much does that matter? But let's start this half by reminding ourselves that great powers can sometimes unite around a UN Security Council resolution authorising military intervention. We're going to go back to January 1991 and a 29-member UN-backed coalition led by the United States launching a massive campaign of bombing and missile strikes in response to Iraq's invasion of neighbouring Kuwait. Six weeks later, jubilant Kuwaitis welcomed convoys of Allied troops into the city and President George Bush Sr. announced a ceasefire. I am pleased to announce that at midnight tonight, Eastern Standard Time, exactly 100 hours since ground operations commenced and six weeks since the start of Operation Desert Storm, all United States and coalition forces will suspend offensive combat operations. It is up to Iraq whether this suspension on the part of the coalition becomes a permanent ceasefire Further, I have asked Secretary of State Baker to request that the United Nations Security Council meet to formulate the necessary arrangements for this war to be ended. So the end of Operation Desert Storm and the U.S. president of the time, George Bush Sr. It feels like a long time ago. Dmitry Babich, what has changed between 1991 and 2018? Well, a number of things changed. Let me remind you that in 1991, the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev and the Syrian president Hafez Assad, later demonized so much by the U.S. media, they were both on the side of the American-led coalition because there was a clear breach of international law by Saddam Hussein. However, if we look at all the experiences, we can see that authoritarian governments actually killed less people in the last few decades than the intervening Western powers or the number of people killed as a result of the Western intervention. Like in Iraq, the bloody civil war started because of the U.S. intervention. The U.S. destabilized the country, which had a dictatorship. I agree with that. The problem is when outsiders come, they destroy this society which happens to be much more finely tuned than the foreign 
peacemakers expected. The road to hell is paved by good intentions, and that was exactly the case in Iraq, in Libya, which is still in raptures of the civil war. I'm afraid it would be the same in Syria if the United States went ahead with its bombing plans in 2013 because the so-called Islamic State was already in the final stages of its formation. It declared itself Dimitri officially Dimitri I'm going to stop you there student. because we're going to lose Ambassador Wolfowitz in a moment. Now, you were Ambassador Wolfowitz, Deputy Secretary of Defence at the time of the invasion of Iraq. Could you answer some of those points by Dmitry Babich? Look, I think, you know, no country has clean hands, and I think the finger-pointing isn't going to get us very far. I think the real issue, and I would go back to 1991 and that clip that you played from President George H.W. Bush at the end of the first Gulf War when I was also in the Pentagon, I think a strong argument could be made that our failure to support the Shia uprising that took place in southern Iraq, as we eventually did for the Kurdish uprising, not only led to the slaughter of at least 100,000 people, and there were mass graves. That's no secret. It's not something you have to argue about. That that might have led to a very different result, as it led to a very different result in northern Iraq. Northern Iraq was much more successful than the rest of the country. And I believe the Shia, if they had been supported back in 1991, might have done something similar. Look, we've had 500,000 people killed in Syria by many estimates, maybe more. We've had, as far as I know, the first extensive use of chemical weapons since World War I in violation of what we thought was a fundamental framework to prevent that. And admittedly, that framework doesn't provide for military enforcement, but that's perhaps a weakness in the framework. I think the question needs to be asked, if the legal framework doesn't allow us to prevent 500,000 people from being killed or allow us to prevent the use of these lethal weapons, which are not only horrific in their consequences on the people they're actually used, but are actually a threat to London and Paris and New York and Washington, maybe it's the legal framework that should be examined rather than the individual actions. And I don't see much discussion about how to actually have a legal framework that makes responsibility to protect something more than a piece of paper. Ambassador Wolfowitz, can you answer two questions? One is, how would you like to see the international legal framework change? And the second is, can you answer Dmitry Babich's point about the road to hell being paved with good intentions that US interventions in Iraq, in Afghanistan, have effectively made things worse for humanitarian situation of civilians? Look, I think it's very hard to do, and I don't, I'm not a genius. I don't pretend to know how to do this. But if you read the responsibility to protect language... There's a clear recognition that there are certain actions that just exceed, I don't know if acceptable norms is the right thing. And just as I believe the right to self-defense doesn't depend on an international consensus, I think judgments when genocide is happening shouldn't require a consensus of the Security Council in order to take any action. And that seems to be the situation we have ourselves in today. And the other point, just before I let you go. Look, the Americans didn't kill 100,000 people in Iraq. It was a vicious insurgency that was organized around the elements of the old Saddam regime. It's a tragedy, but Iraq today is still, in many ways, doing much better than it was under Saddam, and hopefully it will make further progress. Ambassador Wolfowitz, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have to go. Sir Mark Lyle Grant, you are a career diplomat. When you hear that clip that we played a moment ago of 1991 and you think back to a stage when you must have been fairly early into your career when the United Nations Security Council and many other nations managed to unite around this sense of purpose. Do you feel sad to reflect on that and where we are now? 
Well, it is sad. The harsh reality is that the Security Council does work reasonably well when none of the perceived vested interests of the five permanent members are in the balance. And so even when I was arguing very strongly, ferociously with my Russian opposite number in the Security Council about the annexation of Crimea or the destabilization of eastern Ukraine, that same day, maybe when we were discussing Western Africa or Central Africa or Sudan, there might be agreement. I mean, issues are compartmentalized and you have to come together to reach agreements where you can. Unfortunately, what has happened is that because of a number of recent events, and let's be honest, change of personnel, one of the things that's changed since 1991 is that President Putin has come to power with a more nationalistic, assertive, anti-Western stance. Well, and for that that matter, George W. Bush um, Jr. and now Donald Trump. That obviously is one of the things that's happened. Also, there is a lack of trust because of the Iraq war and the perceived failures of intelligence that underpin the decision to go to war. Now, those are two of the factors, there's probably many others, that have changed since 1991. The question is, at what stage do we say the legal system at the United Nations has to change? There have been efforts to do that. I'm thinking in particular of a proposal that was promoted by the French in 2013 to limit the power of the veto in cases of mass atrocities and genocide. This is the veto wielded by the permanent five the on permanent the United members, Nations Security which Council. Russia has used 12 times in Syria and, you know, had those vetoes not happened in 2011 and 2012, 400,000, 500,000 people might have saved their lives. So what happened to that yeah. French effort? Well, that French effort was immediately opposed by Russia and frankly probably would have been opposed by China and perhaps even the United States as well. The difficulty was, A, it was a voluntary code. So that's a problem because experience suggests that Russia and China would have ignored it, whereas it would have been binding more on the United Kingdom and France, who are much rarer in using their vetoes anyway. And secondly, there was the question of who triggers the definition? Who decides that mass atrocities are at risk of happening? Who is given the the power to take that decision? Is it the Security Council as a whole? Is it the General Assembly? Is it the UN Secretary General? So the idea was never pursued, although it did gain quite a lot of support from other member states. But we need something like that, I think, to find a way of avoiding the veto. When that French proposal was introduced in 2013, the reason why it was introduced was that Russia posed the airstrikes against the Syrian army after their reported uh, use of chemical weapons near Damascus. So what would happen if the United States and Europe, if they did bomb Assad's forces back in autumn 2013? The Islamic State would advance on Damascus. They would have got all of these chemical weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. And our problems now would seem minuscule compared to what would be facing us. So that's why veto is important. And I think uh, Sir Mark is right that the United States would oppose it because without the United States veto, Israel would probably not be existing today or would be threatened by lots of external threats. I think we just have to look at the facts before jumping to emotional conclusions about the pernicious effect of vetoes. Owner Hathaway. 
I think that Sir Mark is right that the problem that we face with humanitarian intervention is that there's no agreed upon standard that we can look to. The UK has, of course, articulated its position, but nobody else has really joined on board with that. The 2005 World Summit report that Ambassador Wolfowitz referenced requires action through the Security Council. So it requires that the Security Council authorize any humanitarian intervention. And so we don't yet have any agreed upon criteria for a humanitarian intervention outside the Security Council process. And as a result, when states try to use that as a justification, they're forced to act outside of the legal regime and therefore really take a toll on the ability of the UN Charter to continue to function and the restraint on states' unilateral recourse to force whenever they see fit to really continue to be effective. And And as an international lawyer, I mean, what's your perception of why the system hasn't been flexible enough to just to that? I think the difficulty is twofold. One, nobody really knows what exactly they mean by humanitarian intervention. There is a little bit of I know it when I see it, but one state's humanitarian intervention is another state's aggressive military invasion. And so there isn't really clear agreement as to what counts. That's the first problem. And I think the second problem is that The veto was designed, the veto that the five permanent members of the Security Council have was designed to prevent the great powers from ending up on opposite sides of a shooting war, even if doing so would mean that interventions wouldn't be authorized. So the judgment that was made was that it was better not to act than to act and have, say, Russia um, and the U.S. on opposite sides at the time. Of course, it was Soviet Union and the U.S. on opposite sides of a war because their first preoccupation was to avoid a war between the states, particularly between the great powers. And in fact, it's been pretty successful at that. Uh, We haven't had another world war since World War II. and, And I think that's important for us to bear in mind that that central goal of the charter regime has been successful, but has left us with these problems that we haven't really figured out how to square that circle. Frankly, it's not clear it's possible to figure out how to square that circle, because if the U.S. were to do a more extensive bombing effort in Syria, joined by the U.K. and France, there was a very real possibility that you would hit Russian troops and that you then would have three of the P5 members on opposite sides of a war with a fourth. And that really does pose existential threat to all of us. So there is a wisdom to the system. And I think the problem is just that we haven't been able to come up with an agreement about what counts as a humanitarian intervention or agreed upon system for determining when a humanitarian intervention, in fact, is justified and is likely to be effective. So Mark Lyre-Grant. I think Professor Hathaway makes a very good point, and it's worth just reflecting a little bit on the on the origin of the veto. The veto was introduced in the UN Charter because of the failure of the League of Nations, because the League of Nations, which didn't have a veto provision, meant that a lot of the big powers, including the United States and Germany, simply didn't join in it, and therefore there was no opportunity to prevent the Second World War. Lessons were learned from that, and it was felt in order to bind in the big powers, it was worth giving them a veto. And it's absolutely true, I think, that if the veto were taken away, 
and possibly even limited, I would expect Russia and possibly the United States to walk away from the UN entirely. And that would make the situation even worse. But isn't that effectively the situation we're moving towards where different big powers feel they can shrug off international law or to a certain extent redefine a legal case themselves without going to the Security Council? Well, not exactly, no, because the UN Security Council is extremely active in a way that it wasn't during the Cold War. I remember one American ambassador saying that the Security Council didn't meet for a month when he arrived. Now it meets once or twice every single day and sometimes more often at weekends. So even though perhaps action is blocked, the fact is countries can be held to account, including the United States and including Russia. So there were 27-odd meetings on Ukraine, for instance, while I was there. Now, Of course, Russia vetoed any coercive action on Ukraine, but nonetheless, they had to come to the Security Council in public and justify their stance. And that has some value, I think. And so, Dmitry Babich, do you agree there that we're not back to some frightening pre-Second World War 1930s-style realpolitik where there is no common arena to thrash this out in words? Well, I think we are in a very dangerous situation, much more dangerous than during the Cold War, even more dangerous than during the worst times of the Cold War, which was the beginning, you know, in the 1950s, when the Soviet Union and China were together. In 1950s and 1960s, the Soviet Union and China, the nuclear powers already, they were the revolutionary countries. They were not status quo countries. They wanted to change the world, making it communist, They had totalitarian ideology, but militarily and economically, they were in the minority. Now, Russia and China are status quo powers. Unfortunately, the United States and countries of the European Union, they are now revolutionary powers. (laughs) They want to pursue regime change. They want to make the world better in their own view. And they're in the majority. They have much more powerful military forces. They're much heavier economically. So that creates a dangerous situation because I'm all for reform, but I'm for a cautious reform, not for a revolutionary one, when countries, especially the big powers, come to the other side of the world, forcing their norms, forcing their customs on other people who may not even understand what is required of them. It's a very dangerous situation because when do you have wars? When you have certain active actors who are not satisfied with the status quo. And this is exactly the situation now. But before I put it to to Sir Mark that he represents a revolutionary power, I just want to ask you, surely Mm -hmm. you can't be presenting Russia as a status quo power in the light of recent events in Ukraine, uh, South Ossetia, Georgia, etc.? I can explain. Crimea would have never gone back to Russia if it hadn't been for a violent regime change that took place in Ukraine between November 2013 and February 2014. A legally elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was elected in an election recognized by the United States and by the European Union, was basically ousted. A new government came to power. The program of that party included the repeal of Crimean autonomy. That made Crimeans very, very frightful, and they basically wanted to go to Russia in this situation. They would have never left if it hadn't been for the violent change of power 
in Kiev. In Syria, Russia got involved and sent its planes there in 2015, long after the Western powers got actively involved without any invitation from the Syrian government. So Russia was always reacting. I don't want to say that Russia is a pacifist, but Russia is a status quo power whose all actions are usually reactions to the Western initiatives. Similar like Grant. No, I think, look, Russia and China certainly claim to be status quo powers, but not when it doesn't suit them. And we've seen uh, Russian activity, annexation of Crimea, destabilization of Ukraine, Georgia, we've heard about China in the South China Sea, militarizing the islands, its coercion on Hong Kong, Taiwan, etc. What they mean by status quo is that the sovereignty should be protected But those big powers should be able to dominate in their own backyard and should be left alone to do whatever they like. But I think the time when we can just say, look, governments are free to massacre their citizens, abuse their citizens, is over. I just don't think we can go back to an international order based on no one can interfere in someone else's internal affairs, whatever they do. We're in a global world now with a 24-hour news cycle and standards have risen since those days. And I think we need the international legal framework to catch up with the reality of where the public now are on these issues. Professor Hathaway, in light of what we've just heard from Sir Mark, can you set out for us how we could, as a world, move to responsibility to protect idea, this concept that Sir Mark is sketching out there? Can you fit it into a legal framework? Can you imagine these big players getting to some kind of united position on that? I think that it's very hard to see that unfolding because I think that you're always going to face the danger that states are going to use a justification of responsibility to protect in illegitimate ways. And there has to be somebody that is charged with evaluating or judging the veracity of the claim that's being made. There have been at various points talk about referral to the General Assembly as opposed to the Security Council and perhaps something like that could play a role. But you can't have a system where states get to unilaterally make the decision on their own. I would say that there is another piece to this that we haven't talked as much about, which is we're talking about use of force exclusively as a way of bringing about humanitarian improvements. And we haven't talked about change in allowing refugees in. You know, the United States has let in just a handful of Syrian refugees this year. We also haven't talked about the use of economic sanctions. One of the most powerful responses the West gave to Russia in the wake of its seizure of Crimea was significant economic sanctions that have really dealt a significant blow to Russia. And so it's not clear either that force is all that powerful or that it's the only alternative. Force is very good at destroying things. It's not very good at building things, as we're seeing in Libya, as we saw in Iraq. And so I think we need to think not just about how force and military force, military invasion could improve the lives of people on the ground, but recognize sometimes it can make them worse and also recognize that there might be other tools that would be just as effective, if not quite a bit more effective. And Samart Lyle Grant, you're a diplomat. The other thing I was struck by hearing the clip from 1991 was the sense of how enormously hard the diplomats worked to put that coalition together at that point and whether there's been a fall off in 
diplomatic commitment to actually make those coalitions work. So deal with Professor Hathaway's points and that question. No, I I agree with Professor Hathaway that the military action should always be a a last resort and one should go through the different options uh, first. And diplomacy is the very first option. But just seeing how difficult conflict prevention is in practice at the UN makes me not optimistic that we'll be able to pursue this. I took the UN Security Council actually to The Hague and some of the burial sites of the First World War in August 2014 as the centenary of the First World War. And we had a seminar at the University of Leiden and the question posed was, had the UN Security Council existed in 1914, would it have prevented the First World War? Which, in retrospect, most historians say could have been prevented. But the conclusion was, probably not. And that is a fairly damning indictment of the uh, structure. Dmitry Babich, if today's Security Council was placed in 1914, do you think it would have prevented the First World War? Well, with the people like Donald Trump in power in the United States, it wouldn't, simply because such people don't need investigations before striking, as we know. The recent strike was very dangerous because, obviously, Russians were tipped off about the coming strike. But if communications malfunctioned, that could lead to a real war, probably a nuclear war. Because of what? Because of a chemical attack that has not even been investigated. It has not even been proven. What mistakes has Russia made that it could put right? Because we've heard the representatives from the US, for example, admit to mistakes. I'm just interested. Everyone needs to learn from their mistakes, right? What are Russia's mistakes in this great power game? Well, Russia, Russia's main mistake was to have almost complete trust in the West, especially in the United States and in the European Union during the last 30 years. UNA said that Crimea was the first conquest in Europe after 1945. What about Croatia basically ethnically cleansing the Serb population in Serb Krajina and taking it uh, back under its control in 1995 with full support of the West? Russia at the time did not expect the West to have such a double standard. In Ukraine, there was a very strange liaison between the West and the Ukrainian nationalists. We didn't expect it to happen. And that was the biggest mistake that Russia made. This is revisionist history, I'm afraid. I mean, the fact is that President Putin himself has said that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And that's what explains what happened in Georgia and what happened in Ukraine. On the point about diplomacy, though, it's worth stressing that there have been 12 rounds of UN-facilitated negotiations trying to find a political settlement to the conflict and they have not been successful. There have been some sanctions against Russia as well as against Syria but those have not unfortunately done the business and that's why as a last resort sometimes military action will be required to try and prevent further civilian casualties. And Professor Hathaway one last answer from you would that be your conclusion? I think the danger with that is, first of all, it's not clear that military action of the kind that we've taken is actually going to make the lives of people on the ground any better. It has left Assad's conventional military largely intact. Using military force to kind of pick at the edges is just not going to make things better and probably likely to, unfortunately, make things worse. And on that sombre note, we have to end it because that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to my guests, Professor 
Una Hathaway, Sir Mark Lyle Grant, Dimitri Babich and earlier, of course, Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz.